Welcome to another George Consortium COVID-19 line policy briefing presented by um, public health law experts all around the country in association with Public Health Watch at the Northeastern University and the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University. Um, We are here today to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic, and specifically, we're going to look at eviction, eviction moratoriums, what can be done on the state city level, and what um, is actually happening. Happening. My name is Abraham Gutman. I'm an opinion writer at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I will be moderating. Uh, please, as you're following, um, ask questions, tweet at us, comment at, HP, at PHLWatch um, with a hashtag COVIDLawBriefing. And I'm super excited for today's briefing with us is Ankat Alexander, who is with the Eviction Lab at Princeton, where she recently managed the development of the COVID-19 housing policy scorecard. Hi, Ankat. And a uh, also with that is Emily Benfer, a visiting associate clinical professor of law at Columbia University. She writes a lot about housing condition, renter protections, fascinating work that I really recommend you search. And through her work, she's always pushing us all to think about housing through the lens of health justice. And I'm sure she will do that today as well. And so thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much. So to start this conversation off, and Kat, the Eviction Lab is a really unique resource that gave a first of its kind glimpse into the sheer magnitude of what now is called an eviction crisis thanks to that work. Can you really quickly, the day before you know the pandemic hit the United States, give us an overview of how big of a deal is eviction in the United States? Eviction is huge. Um, there are more evictions every year than there were foreclosures at the height of the Great Recession. Um, and that's just in normal time. Um, the Eviction Lab assembled a database, uh, first of its kind, of more than 80 million eviction records. Um, and what we found was that in a normal month, you could expect to see about 300,000 eviction filings across the country. And that's in normal times before, you know, we had the NPR every Thursday tells me again, you know, there have been more than 5 million unemployment claims in the last week. Well, that's really unfathomable. So we're, we're, when we take this amount of unemployment claims, this loss of income, and Emily, one of the ways to you know stop the bleeding that was discussed is to impose um, various restrictions on um, evictions. So can you talk a little bit about what are the options that state, cities, and federal government have to protect renters from eviction during this time? Great. So over the last month, I've been collecting and analyzing all of the different eviction moratoriums that have been issued across the country. And those broadly are categorized into three categories. So the first is controlling the property owner or the landlord. And this is when the governor is issuing an executive order, an emergency order that actually prevents the landlord from initiating the eviction process. So no notice to quit, no filing for any reason. And then the second category is the court. It is not safe for people to congregate in courtroom settings to go to appearances or hearings without seeing an increase in contagion levels. So courts have suspended hearings throughout the country or given local discretion to do so. And it also involves staying judgment of eviction and extending deadlines. And courts also have the authority to seal records, so we're not seeing that happening right now. And then the last category is freezing the execution of the eviction. So this is when the executive order from the governor or legislation in this state uh, prevents law enforcement from actually carrying out the eviction that was ordered by the court. So it's it's generally falling upon the legislatures, the Supreme Court of the state, if that's the highest court, and 
the governor to address this issue and allow people to safely comply with these shelter-in-place orders, which means that they have to have a place to do it. And if they're being evicted, uh, that's not possible. So making sure that people are able to comply by freezing and forestalling the eviction process. What we're really worried about, though, is that in a lot of states, landlords are still filing evictions. Up until this extraordinary legislation was passed in Massachusetts late yesterday, uh, up to 800 landlords had already filed evictions in all of their properties. And so what we have is this pending mass eviction across the country the second any of these moratoriums are lifted. And so we really need to see a widespread eviction moratorium, which we believe that the federal government has the authority to do and that states across the country can do as well. Thank you for that overview. That was really helpful. In in, in the eviction lab, NCAT, you all kind of used this data um, that Emily um, reviewed of, of the different kind of moratoria, different expi- expirations, um, and you graded them, right? You gave them uh, scores based on um, kind of strength of their protection. So can you explain a little bit kind of the methodology behind that and, and what is considered to be good, strong protection right now? What are we aspiring for? So this project started out because we had already been tracking um, policies that were being implemented at the state and local level. We were seeing that a bunch of uh, areas were already putting some kind of protection in place. And at that point, we connected with Emily to figure out sort of, all right, well, we see all of these different moratoriums. Well, we know that these aren't all the same and they aren't all going to protect renters today and they aren't all going to protect renters tomorrow. So we developed a scorecard and that this was in consultation with more than 40 housing advocates and attorneys around the country to track 21 different measures that states can take to prevent this enormous COVID eviction crisis. And these measures, the set of 21 covers from the very beginning of the process when the land uh, the landlord posts the notice to quit all the way to the end, looking at supportive measures that will make sure that people are able to stay in their homes immediately after the crisis lifts. This was really important to us because we noticed that we were seeing these eviction moratoriums that were just limited to one or two parts of uh, the system. So for instance, the sheriff might not be able to enforce the eviction, but the landlord could still file to evict. And in those states, you end up in the situation where uh, landlords continue to file to evict and the court system receives just thousands of uh, eviction filings that they aren't able to process. And the two really big problems there are one, as soon as the states operate again and the moratorium is lifted, all of those filings could become active. So people who were filed against in April might still be evicted in, you know, further down the line as soon as the state of emergency is lifted. The other problem, of course, is that the courts aren't designed to handle this kind of volume of cases. And so that could lead to the civil court system just crumbling under the weight of all of these excess eviction filings. So that's why we we really wanted to consider the whole breadth here. And the most important uh, two features that are weighted the most heavily in the scores are the initiation process, uh, which is that notices and filings category, and the supportive measures, um, which are things like whether states are providing extra time for uh, tenants to pay rent, or if they are instituting additional housing stabilization measures, like more funding for emergency rental assistance. So those are the two categories that we view as uh, the most important for keeping the crisis from developing further. I'd just like to underscore something Ann Kat said that I think was so important, this idea that the courts are not designed 
to handle this level of mass filings and evictions at once. Um, we need to keep in mind that the court process is frozen across all categories, that in some states, the courts that are handling landlord-tenant cases, they're also handling other dockets. And so they will have to process all of those at once. And we know from before the pandemic that tenants are rarely able to access justice in the landlord-tenant situation in courts because they're unrepresented. In fact, 90% of tenants are unrepresented in an eviction hearing and are unable to raise affirmative defenses or other things that might help them negotiate a, a settlement or other uh, outcomes for their case. And in the situation of COVID-19, many of the moratoriums have created an affirmative defense for tenants that they may not be aware of related to COVID-19 non-payment hardship. And that, that will really require legal access and legal counsel in order to raise those defenses. So it will be really important going forward that uh, states start to pay attention to how they will support the courts in both reopening and in ensuring access to justice for tenants and landlords in the process. So I, I'm wondering about that. Entertain my logic for a second. So I'm wondering what can we do except delay, 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 right? So we want to not have people file because that delays them, that requires them to file when this is over, whatever that means. But then again, you can have an avalanche of filings. And if we support the court to do that, we would still have an avalanche of eviction just a little bit delayed after. Money is really tight. States and localities now have no money, right? So what can be done? Is there any tool in this like property rights system that we have that landlords are private and tenants are private and it's a contract that we can say, hey, maybe you don't pay rent this month or maybe you're not allowed to increase rent or like what are some of the options that we have there? That's a really great question. And that's one of the things that the eviction lab is really tracking right now, thinking about what are these tenancy preservation measures that we can put in place? And there are there are a few being proposed right now. And one is, for example, rent cancellation. And in a state that has given the governor broad authority uh, under police powers to suspend any laws in the state because of the emergency, they could legally cancel rent. But I think it's really important to underscore here that we don't want to shift the cost from the tenant to the landlord because that will create the same downward spiral, that we really truly need subsidies from the federal government to ensure that everyone is able to weather this storm without exploding this socioeconomic divide and creating this cavern that we can never forge again. I wonder, Anka, if you can give a, a small pitch here for the scorecard. Excellent. It's really easy to walk through if you're not a legal expert like me. And can you kind of talk about who should use this? Who should review this? And how should this be used? So we wanted to develop a scorecard that was accessible to a really broad audience. We wanted to make sure that it was something that journalists could use so that they could understand what the eviction moratorium meant because we were seeing a bunch of local articles that were saying there's a, there's a moratorium in the state, which is awesome because that's one of the best ways that we can make sure that tenants are aware of their rights. But they weren't always able to get into the kind of detail about like what protections were available. So we wanted to make sure that this was going to be accessible to journalists. We wanted to make sure that this tool was going to be accessible to people in the legal side and in legislative offices so that they've got uh, an idea of what options are out there for tenant protection. Uh, we also wanted to make sure that the language that we used was accessible to tenants so that we can help tenants understand what their rights are. And it's not always uh, is protective if there is a moratorium, but tenants aren't aware of it. If it's still a situation where a landlord posts a notice to quit, for example, which is still perfectly legal in many states, more than half, if tenant gets that notice to quit and isn't aware that the eviction process is frozen, they may think that they need to move out rather than knowing that they have the right to remain in their home. You know, 
one of the things that I think people should use this for, uh, one of the audiences, is state government as well. Uh, I was very surprised at the broad range of approaches to eviction moratorium and the near complete lack of tenancy preservation measures that have been engaged to date. Uh, and when looking at the scorecard, states can see that there are only about nine or 10 states that received above three stars. And there are more than that that received no stars because they have left it to local discretion or overlooked this issue altogether. And so this is a way for states to look and see which which other states have actually engaged in more thoughtful process here and, and required this eviction moratorium and the tenancy preservation measures as well as short-term supports. Those are the states that are going to see the, the least economic fallout from this. The ones that have the strongest safety nets right now for tenants and for low-income people especially are the ones that will have much easier recovery after the pandemic. I think, I think that's, that's a great point. It's um, it's the right thing to do. It's also the pragmatic thing to do. Um, so wait, I have two legal questions, if that's okay. I'll throw it to both of you. So the first is, to borrow um, the term, a term from um, Matthew Desmond, um, I wonder about the balance of record keeping. So when someone files an eviction right now, when someone engaged with a, misses a rent payment, what does that do to people's credit while moratorium exists? While like, How much should people worry? Right, they might not need to leave but is this going to haunt them 10 years from today because they were technically missed a rent check? So I wonder about that. And I also um, wonder about if Emily can make the case of why the federal government could actually uh, step in what sounds like a very local issue. So on that first point, it is absolutely possible that a missed or late rent payment uh, could haunt tenants if there aren't stronger protections put in place. One of the measures that we're tracking is whether the state has passed an emergency order uh, forbidding landlords from reporting missed or late rent payments to credit agencies, because we understand that we're in a situation where a lot of people through no fault of their own are going to be missing rent payments. And this has really, the, the bigger impact is from my personal perspective, is that this leaves tenants with a, a harder time uh, acquiring housing down the road. If they've got an eviction filing on their record, or if they have a lower credit score, it also on the credit score angle, that hurts landlord too, because if there are all of these tenants who suddenly have low credit scores due to this particular crisis, that makes it harder to distinguish between tenants who are perhaps more habitually late on rent, et cetera, or have had other financial struggles that prevent paying rent and, and distinguish those tenants from tenants who have missed two or three rent payments during the crisis, but have other than that, always been able to make rent. With the eviction filing, these eviction filings can really follow you for a long time in most states. And it's very common for tenants to, before they are able to sign a lease, the landlord runs the name through a, a tenant screening service, and it'll pop up with yes or no for whether they are in that tenant screening services database. Some of those databases might include filings, even if the case ultimately is settled in favor of the tenant or never goes to a hearing, or if it indeed ends up being settled in favor of the landlord. And so those filings can be quite sticky, as in they can stick to the, the tenant's record for a long time and really impede their ability to get new housing. That was another reason why we weigh initiation so heavily on the scorecard. Mm. And so speaking of initiation, just to give you a sense of the statistics and how many evictions are allowed to begin right now, 65% of states allow a landlord to begin the eviction process by providing notice to the tenant. So this is a this is still a widespread issue across the 
country that we have not really dealt with the housing problem, which is why I think it's important for the federal government to start thinking about a nationwide moratorium on evictions, but that's coupled with strong support financially for property owners and for tenants alike. Uh, we had a major housing crisis in this country before the pandemic, and the, the virus COVID-19 is going to perpetuate that and magnify it to an extreme that we haven't seen in the past. Uh, this is a reality that we have to prepare for, or we're going to be recovering from it for decades into the future. Unfortunately, we're at time, but this was fascinating, and hopefully we can all get back together to, to continue this conversation on, on this housing issue and other housing issues. And thank you so much to Anka Alexander and Emily Benfer. And we will be broadcasting here on Twitter at noon Eastern every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday uh, for all of your um, COVID law and policy briefing needs. Uh, go to at PHLawWatch or search hashtag COVID law briefing. Uh, show notes will be on publichealthlawwatch.org slash COVID-19 briefing and also archived at the Week in Health Law podcast that you can find online or at your favorite podcast app. Uh, the COVID-19 law and policy briefings are produced by Faith Kelly and Bethany Saxon. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Ankat. Thank you, Emily Benfer. Thank you. Thank you.